0: Welcome to Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. My name is John Bartlett and I'm your host. Zach Scout was given months to live due to late stage liver disease. After years of alcohol and drug abuse, Zack had to commit to six months sobriety in order to qualify for a liver transplant. Somehow, with the help of his dogs, he found the strength to become sober. His recovery was so successful that ultimately he didn't need to have the liver transplant. Zach's story didn't end there. After healing himself, he created a nonprofit organization named after one of his dogs, Marley, and began to rescue, rehabilitate, and rehome death row dogs. Hey, Zach, it's John. Thank you so much for joining us today on Dog Save the People. Absolutely. I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm such a fan of your work and everything that you're doing, and I'm so blown away to have this chance to talk to you today.
1: Well, thanks, man. That makes me feel great. I appreciate that.
0: So let's dive into it. I know about your story, and I hope you don't mind because I'm sure you've told this story many, many times, but if you don't mind, would you please tell us a little bit about your journey, your health issues, your sobriety?
1: So in 2008, I was diagnosed with end-stage liver disease. Um, I'd been an alcoholic probably since about 15, everyday drinker since about 17, Uh, and then I was an all-day drinker from 2003 when I'd gotten in a bad car accident and uh, broke my chest and my shoulder, became an all-day drinker. From that period of time until 2008 when I got sick, I was diagnosed with what's called acute alcoholic hepatitis. So it's basically just the erosion, the sickening of your liver just gets worse and worse up until the point where, where everything starts to fail. You know, when you're in end-stage liver failure, your, your kidneys aren't working, your gallbladder, your pancreas, kind of everything is, is shutting down. And um, before that, I had worked with dogs. You know, I would worked with the Humane Society. And to be perfectly honest, I um, when my 10-year high school reunion was coming up, I had wanted to get even more involved so that I could kind of brag to my fellow classmates that you know even though I was a, an alcoholic and a drug addict, I could at least say at my reunion that I was. Um, that I, well, as a matter of fact, I work with the Humane Society. You know, my twin brother's getting his second master's degree, and my my other best friend's a professor. And so I got to I got to figure something I can fib about and make myself sound interesting. But I just fell in love with it. That was that was work that I I started in two thousand and three, two thousand and four. And I really loved that work, but I didn't think there was a future in it, you know, and when I got sick, I was admitted to the, to the hospital for um, almost six months up here in Bakersfield and, um, and then finally admitted to a comprehensive transplant center down in Bakersfield. I mean, down in Beverly Hills. I'm skipping over a lot of details because this would take hours to explain the whole process. But essentially, what happened was after getting admitted to the comprehensive transplant program at Cedars Sinai, they sent me home and said, "Listen, you need to stay stay near an emergency room because you're you know you're deathly ill, and um, things are going to get worse before they get better, if they get better." But try to, um, you know, try to find your will to live and try to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And keep in mind, I hadn't I hadn't had a sober day. I hadn't had sober chunk of hours for really any time leading up to that point. Um, I was going through through opiate withdrawal, which I had become addicted to in the hospital from dilatid and morphine. I had no will to live. You know, so when I got released, I, I got really kind of obsessed with suicide and, and taking my own life. I was um you know, 140 pounds with this gigantic nine months pregnant, swollen belly, you know, along with, you know, I was leaking from both ends, you know, pretty much blood on a regular basis. You know, they were tapping, like, they, it It's called paracentesis, where they they tap your stomach, they either do it through the front or the back, and they extract all of this liquid, which is essentially blood and bile that's piled in there, that's um, accumulated in your abdominal cavity. So I just had everything everything wrong with me mentally emotionally physically spiritually i was just about as low as you can get and um in a way the kind of the aha moment that i had was i had gone to the bathroom in bed which was a regular occurrence um I was taking this medicine called annulose, which makes you lose your control of your bowels. It's supposed to help with ammonia buildup on your brain when you're in liver failure. Um, when you're in liver failure, the ammonia buildup on your brain really messes with you cognitively. You don't have your balance. You can't really understand what day it is or what's going on. So it was a really important medicine. But So yeah, I'd gone to be, the bathroom in, in bed, and it was the middle of the night, and I was naked standing in front of the mirror, not recognizing what I saw in the mirror. I you know, just terrified at what was staring back at me. And I started to cry and just really kind of wonder how the hell did this happen? How did I get here? What is this? How do I, where do I go from here? And I looked down and my dogs were looking up at me, three of them, Marley, Tug and Buddy, like uh, like nothing was wrong. Like everything was perfect. You know, like uh, like I looked terrific. Like they saw who I was. And that was kind of the first day that I I said, all right, man, I I, I got to do something. I can't just continue to sit here feeling sorry for myself. I got to try and and do something. And and that's what we kind of did was we just started to walk, just literally put one foot in front of the other and take my rescue dogs out um, up here in the mountains and and just try to walk. When I first started, I was on crutches and, and really couldn't walk very far, just a little bit. And we'd do it several times a day. But I quickly started to get some strength, though. My muscles had all become atrophied from being in the hospital for so long. So I started to get some strength back. And long story short, the goal was to accumulate six months of sobriety so that I would be transplant eligible. And by the time I got six months of sobriety through walking my dogs and being of service to my community, I no longer needed a liver transplant. So very miraculously, my body had healed itself to a degree, to the point where I no longer needed a liver transplant. And it's you know it has been the case ever since. If you kind of graphed my progress on a chart, you would just see consistent constant progress which doesn't usually happen with people who are in end-stage failure end-stage failure is usually death or transplant what did it for me in terms of my dogs was just helping me get outside of my brain my brain is such a dangerous place to to be hunkered down in with kind of only my thoughts you know i needed to be doing something for somebody else, about somebody else, concerning somebody else. You know, I I couldn't be concerned with myself any longer. It was just um, exhausting. You know, so there was no job aspirations. I didn't want to do this for a living. I was just trying to survive. You know, and so it was more just trying to wake up in the morning. You know, I, I really had a hard time shaking suicide because I just I didn't think anyone would like me. I didn't think I I was. I wasn't going to be funny anymore. How was I going to enjoy anything anymore? How was I going to be intimate with someone anymore without drugs and alcohol? You know, I was was constantly focused on what I no longer had, what was taken away from me with with alcohol and drugs. And for anyone who like relate to this, if you've if you've dealt with this kind of alcoholism or addiction, is it there was no the lines were blurred as to where I began and kind of alcohol ended. Our existences were so so intertwined. You know, I, I drank from the moment I got up until the moment I went to bed and all of the joys, perils, you know, happinesses, experiences were all thick with, with alcohol. There was nothing, uh, you know, there was no me without alcohol. And when alcohol was taken away, I just had this this immense anxiety, you know, this overwhelming paranoia mixed with anxiety mixed with nervousness restlessness whatever you want to call it but just an inability to um, to face life on life's terms or or really hold on to any hope either and what my dogs really helped me do is just pull my head out of my ass and um, start doing something productive and I really enjoyed it we were walking a lot you know I was walking every day up in the mountains with my dogs and we did it several times a day just to try and get better and All anybody had ever said to me, including at most of my Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous meetings, was like, Oh my God, look how sick you are. You know, this guy, no one, people didn't want to talk to me. People stared at me. You know, I was very bizarre looking. You know, I was bright yellow and my eyes were yellow and I was hugely swollen and I had purple bruises all over me and like my ankles were huge. My legs were big and, you know, I was really just a strange looking person. I looked like a walking dead person. And so I'd taken my dogs out on a walk and we'd gotten further than we'd ever gotten that morning. And, and the sun was rising. Um, and again, we're up here in the mountains and I see this figure, this like countenance coming up over the ridge, with the sun rising behind him, as I got closer, I realized that wasn't a bear. It was just a guy by himself. And he was a little man and he was wearing like, this huge parka and he was really old. His name was Wendell. We called him Wen, and, um, And he didn't say anything to me about the way I looked. He just came up to me and we started talking and started asking about my dogs and we just started walking together and he didn't say anything about what the hell's wrong with you. You look terrible. And and it turns out uh, Wendell had been taking care of his wife who was dying of cancer for the previous three years so he hadn't left her side for three years and she had passed a week prior to that and that was a walk that they had done every year every day together every morning for twenty five years they did that walk and this was the first time he was doing that walk without her and you know it was uh, it was a pretty profound moment because he wasn't taking any time to feel sorry for himself he wasn't worried about bears or mountain lions he was by himself walking in the mountains allowing himself to be present and um that was a really i'm really glad i was blessed with that experience to have met him on that day and and to be able to have that to hold on to and move forward with
0: so i lost my husband a couple of years ago and we have a house up in connecticut in the woods and after john died my sister was up there with me and she said come on let's go walk let's go hike the appalachian trail And it was really like about the last thing that I wanted to do. I just wanted to lay on the couch and just curl up. And she said, no, let's go. And so I brought my dogs. I have three dogs and two of them came with me on the hike. And this first time that I walked with her, I really literally could walk a few steps. I think I walked like two minutes and said, I'm done. I can't. Let's go back. I just wanted to lay down. But I found that every time that I was up there, every day... I would get myself up, my dogs were right by my side, they would be staring at me, kind of looking at me like, let's go dad. And we would walk the trail. And every time I would walk, we'd walk a little bit further. And what was so beautiful is that through this year of grief, we walked through rain and snow and the leaves falling in summer, high summer. And I was able to really witness the change of seasons. This is up in Connecticut. And it was transformative for me. I mean, having my dogs there with me by my side, kind of like your story, it really helped me heal in a way that was surprising, to say the least. And now, when I'm up there, my dogs look at me, they they literally, they're relentless. They won't let me relax until we go walk the trail. And I have to say, being out in nature, has helped me heal so much. So I really resonate with your story.
1: Yeah man, it really does. I mean, um when I slow down in my own grief, I mean it's one thing to experience grief and to allow yourself to be even depressed. But to get stuck in it and not know a way out is is really um for me it's possible all the time. Uh it's something that can always kind of jump up and bite me and before you know it, it's happening. And, um, and working with my dogs is, is always, it's kind of like going to a meeting, you know, I'll find any reason not to go to a meeting and then I've never been to a meeting and gone like, well, shit, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have gone to that. You know, I've enjoyed myself every time and every time I take my dogs out, you know, I, I just have to get through the first 10 minutes of my brain telling me I should be doing other things and I, I can't be taking this break and I should be you know answering emails or blah, blah 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 or whatever else but just getting out there and, and seeing the expressions on their face and seeing how they're present and, and taking you know, like you said like like a walking meditation to just observe what's all real and, and, and what's out there is, is really important and uh, I don't know that I would have that clarity were I just out there by myself. you know I think having my dogs you know with me really provides some kind of context, some kind of like direction a little bit.
0: I agree with you. And just seeing it through their eyes really takes me to another place.
1: And then really, so Marley's must was just organically born out of, out of these, these days, just trying to battle liver failure. And, um, I started to add foster dogs to my crew. I was living above my dad's garage and I, I built some, um, some kennels and I had some crates and I, I partitioned off a few areas. I created a quarantine and I just started adding more dogs and, um, getting them adopted and, nurturing the large dog foster program which i created for the humane society and um and we just started cooking you know i started writing funny write ups you know like third person write ups about the dogs like you know i'd write them in, from the perspective of like uh i'd name the dog Saul right and then we'd write his biography from the perspective of like a uh, an 80 year old jewish man from brooklyn Oh, I love it. You know what I mean? Just have fun with it. Just try to be creative and like figure out who the fuck I was as a person. Because I didn't really know. I honest, this is the first time I'd slowed down enough to try and figure out like what what was I creatively and what did I want to do? And um, Marley's Mutts just kind of organically evolved out of that. I didn't even come up with the name. It was a, a gal at the Pet Lodge, Erica, who who came up with the name for Marley's Mutts. And back then it just stemmed from all the there was only a handful of rescues. This was 11 years ago and they were purebred rescues so we had one doberman pincher rescue we had a german shepherd rescue and then there was like a a hunting dog rescue but that was it back then now there's hundreds and thousands of them but back then there was there was none so we thought we got to come up with one for the mutts you know most of us have mutts we're not going we to have purebred dogs what about what about a rescue for mutts so
0: and marley's one of the dogs that was standing by you during that time
1: yeah yeah marley's my marley was a uh, he was everything i wanted to be it's going to sound weird cuz he's a dog uh you know chicks wanted to be with him and dudes wanted to be like him i guess that's what a rottweiler pitbull from the Mojave shelter he was just so intimidating looking you know just regal regal not not even intimidating but just powerful and regal and um people's reactions were always kind of like oh shit you know like whoa look at that dog you know and uh and he was just special you know he was mr mutt and he he kept pack harmony he he lived to keep harmony within our social system that we had created it was very un it was almost illogical in many ways because there was so much going on at certain times. You know, we had a lot of different dogs living living there and, you know, everybody was off leash. And so there's a lot of peace that had to be kept. You're integrating. It's like you're bringing people in straight out of rehab, too. They're coming in from the shelter and they're all neurotic and freaked out. And some of them got diseases. And And Marley just really understood how to keep the peace. He, he didn't start fights, but he would break them up. You know, he was a really he was like having a human being. And he, he was so calm and yet so assertive. And that was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be like him when he entered a room. You know, he just had utmost confidence, the utmost, like the way he moved through space was just regal. People are going to hear this and go, But my dog is a neurotic lunatic. So let me segue into my other dog, who I raised from a puppy, Tug, who took on all the terrible qualities that I had, you know, like he was basically a recovering alcoholic addict, you know, (laughs) he was like, scared of everything was always getting in fights, you know, just terrified with like, you know, he he was the opposite of what Marley was. And he definitely poor guy took on most of those characteristics that I, I wish I hadn't passed on.
0: And what kind of dog was he? I'm sorry.
1: He was a, a Labrador. He, he died a year ago. Marley died two years ago. Um, they were both quite old, you know, 15 and 16 respectively.
0: So you started Marley's Mutts and obviously it's grown looking at the numbers here. You've saved over 5,000 dogs in the last few years.
1: Yeah. I have no idea to be perfectly honest between transports. And just, I mean, I've definitely fostered hundreds and hundreds of dogs, but as an organization, something like that, you know, I really, it's hard to tell. You know, between transport and rescue, it's definitely you know north of five hundred a year. So being able to really show people that I found my purpose through this really unconventional means, and that's an unconventional job, but yet I'm pursuing you know my life's work is really important for people to see that you can do things like essentially be a professional dog rescuer. You know, and it's important that you dig down and find your purpose and get into that journey and see where it leads you.
0: And then you've also done a TED talk.
1: I did a TEDx talk. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was really cool. I get terrified to do these things. You know, I'm, I'm like, uh, I get very nervous, you know, very, very painfully nervous, mostly because I go off to, I I have tendency to be tangential. You know, I can really like launch myself into another stratosphere and, and get so off topic that, you know, it can be tough to reel me back in. But, uh, That was really cool. That that was a really, really big honor. And, um, to be able to, to reference that and be able to see that online and, and hear my own story was pretty, pretty cool. You know, I just, I got to share with my mom that day that I was having a daughter. Um, she didn't know that we were having a a girl yet. You'll notice in the first couple of minutes of that share, I got to basically let my mom know we're having a, a daughter. So. Her name is Shiloh. I don't even know which animal is her favorite or which I, which I could call hers. She really loves a couple of the horses, specifically this one rescue horse that we have named Magic. Uh, but she really likes the pig. And she um, she yeah she, she's just an animal girl. She loves, loves, loves animals.
0: That's amazing. Now, you have a beautiful dog. I believe she's a poodle. And she's missing her two front legs.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say missing them. But, yes, she came from the shelter up in Modesto. And, they sent her to us after, um, couple of severely broken front legs you know once you rescue animals like this where, where you show kind of the world what's possible people will tend to reach out to you that's why we've had so many of them and it's really astonishing to to kind of learn what people feel is normal in terms of the veterinary community or what people have deemed quality of life because there was a lot of flack that we got anytime we've done these double front leg amputations What they don't understand is she's literally the happiest dog i've ever had i mean she really is the happiest dog we've ever had. I mean, bar none. And she gets along really, really well. She's incredibly inspiring. When I put her in her cart and take her anywhere with me, I mean, she is just to be in possession of and to share an existence with a a creature like that, that just exudes positivity that people just, people have to like brush it away from their faces. It's so thick When she's around, you know they they can't like they can't deal with it. She's so positive. You know what I mean? Like people lose their minds. They get so caught up with that's just so amazing. That's so remarkable, and it it really inspires people. And um, to think that we we would have opted not to create that little inspirational dog in favor of you know euthanizing her because of uh, quality of life is just um, it's hard for me to to follow logically. You know, I mean. There's incredibly wonderful lives that dogs can go on to live, uh, especially because of their, their disabilities. And that's one thing that we're learning more and more that we're seeing more and more.
0: I agree with you. I had a dog that changed my life. His name was tiny Tim. And I met tiny Tim just as I was turning 40. Tiny Tim was a three legged Roddy. He had his leg amputated on Christmas Eve. So they named him tiny Tim. And when I brought him home, Mm -hmm. It was so interesting because he he was missing his front right leg. And so when he walked, he actually had to gallop. He couldn't just saunter down the street. And so when we'd be walking down the street, people would be coming towards us and they would stop in their tracks or they'd jump out of the way, one or the other. And um, it was so beautiful to see because as he was walking down the road, he would like bring people out of their comas, out of their thoughts and uh, it was just such a great thing because he was such a happy dog and he was just getting on with things and it was such a lesson i think for me certainly and for all the people that witnessed this just to like get on with things
1: yeah that's for sure man that's kind of the that's kind of the wheelhouse of what we're trying to get into is just dogs as medicine um dogs as spiritual medicine actual medicine you know for physiological illnesses for emotional illnesses, for, you know, psychiatrically and like, what can our dogs provide us? What, what can they show us? What can they teach us? What can they, you know, when it comes to being in the present, when it comes to truly living in the present, when it comes to, um, sorry, that's not my dogs, all of that, you know, there's just, dogs just seem to make everything better, especially if we have a, a healthy relationship with them. And if we understand dog psychology to a degree, so there's, there's certain balance that needs to take place. Like as we, as we catapult into this new, new time where dogs really are our best friends and are with us almost all the time. We have to also learn to um, understand dogs as dogs, because if we treat dogs as human beings, we're going to do them a grand disservice. You know, we need to be applying to their their senses we need to be applying to their needs and we need to be taking all those things into consideration and too often we just treat dogs like people and it it might be cute and whatever else but it's not really serving them i foresee in the next several decades you know this is not going anywhere this human canine bond and all of the magic that comes from it is only getting bigger and better and we're only going to learn more about what you know animals and dogs specifically can do to benefit our lives but we just have to be cautious not to make it too much about us.
0: Right. I agree with you. Yeah, we tend to humanize them and project our own human emotions and capacities onto them. But it's true. They're sentient animals. And so you're doing a lot of work with halfway houses and you have this program called Pause to Change. And am I correct in saying that you also go to prisons to do this work?
1: Yeah, we we work in five facilities all around the state of California and we take death row dogs and bring them into California state prisons for extended rehabilitation you know really it's um it's a vocational program so we have your typical institution would be like california city we have 10 dogs living there training with 25 to 30 inmates 13 hours a day for three months so the dogs live there they train with them they eat with them it's the only program run inside of the pod and on the yard so when we go in there every week we're training surrounded by inmates in their house in their environment most other classes are done in a Classroom in the middle of all of it and it's it's designed to give them an option when they get out of prison You know to land themselves a job within the canine the the pet services industry Which is a hundred billion dollar a year industry bigger than the music industry and these guys um, a lot of these guys of color and, and guys of different backgrounds you know, a lot of their communities are where we have a lot of overpopulation problems. And what I'm seeing is a lot of these guys have, have real answers to go back into their own communities, potentially to, to help solve problems and act as liaisons to, to help make their own communities better for animals. And, um, but on more than that, you know, it's really become something that, I'm it's my life's work. It is what I feel like I'm, I'm compelled and put on this earth to do is work with inmates, um, and dogs on on getting better at life, really. I mean, we're there to bond with them. We're there to believe in them. We're there to understand their potential. We're there to, to draw that potential out of them. We're there because we want them to succeed and we believe in them. And a, a lot of cases, what these guys have never had is someone to do just that. So it started out as a vocational you know, and dog training program, and it's become a whole lot more than that.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Well, when you're speaking about this, you're really speaking about both the inmates and the dogs giving them both tools
1: oh yeah these dogs i mean especially at california city we sent in the worst of the worst so these these were uh you know we're dealing with repeat offender uh violent criminals and and a lot of these dogs were kind of repeat offender you know, violent <laughs> dogs uh and not not to a large degree but certainly every round there was a handful of dogs that we sent in that that really needed the structure, the the discipline, the structure, the routine, the exercise, both mental and physical, that, that you can get in there. I mean, you're working with there's two primary inmates and then basically a floater for each dog, for each canine team. And they're working constantly. You know, they're every day they're working on things and every day they're they're making progress with these dogs and developing that bond. And in many cases they are they are much more the dog rescuers than than we are.
0: And how long are the dogs with them?
1: three months and they graduate with a can they they're aspiring to pass the canine good citizen certification which is your first big certification um it's a 10-point test that really gets you in the door in terms of therapy so if you do 50 hours of community service on top of that that certification you're an official you become a a official therapy dog and we offer certification through our own in-house program
0: Fantastic. Now, did you yourself do any training to learn how to work with dogs?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing it for for many years. I mean, a lot of it was just—I mean, I literally used to watch The Dog Whisperer in the hospital um, when I was getting better. In, well, not getting better when I was in the hospital. There were Angels Baseball and reruns of the of The Dog Whisperer is what I would watch on TV because uh, Fox Sports and and uh, and I think it was Matt Geo were the only a couple of the only channels that came in. And then I've you know trained with Caesar a bunch of different times over there. He gave me a scholarship, I think I want to say like five years ago or six years ago, so five years ago to go attend his workshop. And and then I've you know I've worked with a bunch of really qualified trainers who are all over the place in terms of where their base knowledge has come from. There's different training camps, you know. There's people that train in different ways, and and a lot of our trainers for because we operate in so many prisons, we have you know, we have 10 or 12 trainers that we've worked with, the approach we kind of take is that we just try to amalgamate everything into, if it works, it works, you know, and, and, and that's that's kind of the focus that, that we have. We, we try not to, to cross anything out unless it's illogical or immoral.
0: I have a quote here from you. This is from an Oprah.com article from a few years ago, and you're talking about your dogs and about Marley's mutts. The quote says, They were throwaway dogs, and there was a time when I felt like a throwaway human being. And you go on to say, they've experienced a metamorphosis, and so have I. This is such a beautiful, beautiful quote. And the idea that you've been able to work with these, what you would consider, or what others would consider throwaway dogs, and then to pair them, as you're doing in the prison situations, with people that are also possibly considered throwaway, it's really such an inspiring thing, and giving them both. This gift, this way of elevating their lives through this relationship with each other, it's just so inspiring.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I'm glad you quoted that because, you know, I, I get so caught up in moving forward and the next thing. And, and it can all be pretty overwhelming to the point where you, you can forget where you've come from in favor of just being busy, you know. Um, so to, so to just to hear that and to think about it, you know, it's exactly how I felt. I still have remnants of that feeling, you know, I've always, but especially then where I didn't, I didn't have any skills. I didn't have any coping mechanisms. I didn't, I, I really felt like a throwaway. Like I, by throwaway, like it would be best if people just threw me away. Like it would be better for everyone else. Not, not just that I felt like a throwaway, but, but people ought throw me away because I'm only going to cause you pain. So to, you know, to really experience that metamorphosis, that transition and to see it happen in them, too, is a really powerful thing. And that's probably why I always have a foster dog with me is just to remind me of that kind of um, transition.
0: Good for you, Zach. Good for you, Zach. I really appreciate you being with us today. It's been a real honor. Your story is such a miracle. Um, Where do we find you on social media?
1: Yeah, yeah. We're on Instagram. Well, me is just Zach Scow, Z-A-C-H-S-K-O-W. Marley's Mutts is just at Marley's Muts. Positive Change is at Positive Change Program, or just Positive Change on Facebook. Um, and Marley's Mutts.org is our website.
0: Which is a great website, by the way. It's got a lot of breadth to it and some really great products, some great t-shirts.
1: Awesome. Thank, thank you for sharing about your husband and, and all of that. You know, I, um, I can't imagine, man, I've, I've been with my wife now for three years and I can't imagine. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you for moving forward and I'm proud of you for sharing that.
0: Thank you. Yeah. It's been quite a journey and my dogs have been there right by my side, really the whole time, keeping me honest, keeping me accountable. And that's really part of their many, many gifts that I've experienced and that you've been able to communicate with your work. Zach, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you again.
1: All right. Thanks, bud. Take it easy.
0: I love Zach's whole philosophy about life. He's all about service. He's all about giving back, which is really what his dogs gave to him and helped him to heal. He's now taken that and made it his life's mission to help others, to help dogs, to help people in prison. And he's created this life of complete service, which is one of the... Tenants of AA and recovery. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. This show is a production of As It Should Be, a content studio, and it's made with the support of our producer and editor, Jack Summer. Special thanks to our composer and neighbor, Daniel Lampert, for creating the music for the show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can subscribe to Dog Save the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this show, please leave a review or rating. New episodes come out every Tuesday, so see you next week for another episode from Dog Save the People. You can also check out the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, my foundation, at johnbartlettny.com. Enjoy a walk with your dog and make it a great day
1: for both of you.